Salam and welcome to another episode of Network Reorient in association with Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. In this episode, we have Ismail Patel in conversation with Hatim Bazian on structural Islamophobia, global politics, and the demonization of the Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Hatim, and welcome to Network Reorient. Reorient. Thank you very much for joining us today. I know you're a busy person, so welcome. Well, thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for having me. Dr. Hatim, uh, alhamdulillah, you've uh, written a lot of stuff. You've uh, presented a lot of papers and produced a lot of material to cover in the half an hour that, you've, we, that we have got today. But uh, let's start uh, somewhere. So let's start at... Uh, the idea of Islamophobia, and I want to understand how you discuss or frame Islamophobia and how you'd like to present it. Um, thanks for this question. Uh, uh, dealing with the field of Islamophobia, which uh, is an expanding uh, field with uh, more scholars and researchers, community activists and groups coming in, uh, it's important to look at the field in general and what's going on uh, before I can give exactly where I'm locating the work uh, on Islamophobia that I do. Sure. Uh, there's some that approach Islamophobia from uh, the lens of acculturation, assimilation, and these are the experiences uh, of individuals and communities going through that process. Mm-hmm. Uh, other groups uh, of researchers uh, have taken a decolonial approach, uh, looking at it from a decolonial perspective, mm-hmm. uh, researching and looking at both the colonial period and how uh, anti-Muslim uh, animus has been there <laughs> articulated. Uh, a third uh, aspect, which is also connected to the decolonial, is thinking of Islamophobia as a form of racism. And I know that in the UK there is an, a solid uh, grounding for that work, including uh, the work of Reorient and uh, scholars at Leeds and other places, uh, including Salman uh, Sayyid. Uh, and then there's a, a fourth group that attempts to uh, think of uh, the rise of uh, violence and quote extremism in the Muslim world to be the driver for uh, the intensification of anti-Muslim and Islamophobia uh, uh, in the West, which basically get them to argue, uh, especially in projects that are often are funded around the whole notion of CVE and so on, that you need to address and reduce uh, 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 violence and extremism in the Muslim world as a way uh, to try to uh, reduce the racist attitudes uh, in the West, which is a very problematic uh, proposition, but you have a lot of projects that have that linking uh, Islamophobia to anti-violence extremism. I personally, in my work, focus on both the decolonial as well as the Islamophobia as a form of racism, and therefore navigate the long history of colonial discourse, coloniality, uh, colonial logic, and then the long history of race, racialization, racial projects, and the racial markers that Uh, have fluidity between both. Let me stop you there. This is quite quite loaded uh, stuff. Let's find uh, sort of... 
unpack some of the stuff that that you've you've covered so far so quickly. Um, let's go back to this rise of uh, extremism in the Muslim world. Yes. Do we do you consider that as part of a construct rather than as much as its construct to demand assimilation or acculturation within a state? That these are simply uh, discourses that are that emerges to problematize Muslims. Oh, absolutely. I'm just saying uh, when I mention this, uh, I'm looking at those individuals that write and engage in that scholarship. Sure. Uh, I, I think if we think about from my perspective, uh, uh, when we talk about violence, uh, I think we have to talk about violence that have been committed and structurally produced against the Muslim subject. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I remember when we had the Islamophobia conference in um, Sarajevo uh, and uh, the ex-foreign uh, British uh, Foreign Secretary Jack Straw was there and uh, he spoke about how the Muslims, uh, theologians and scholars need to uh, answer and respond to the rise of uh, extremism and violence in the Muslim world. And again, this, this is a person that uh, supported the Iraq war, an illegal invasion of a sovereign state uh, that killed and maimed uh, hundreds of thousands. Yet he had the audacity to be in Sarajevo, uh, where you, mm. had, you look up, this, up the hill and there is the, the graves of those who were massacred. And, and yet the framing is that the Muslim is uniquely predisposed to answer for violence. Uh, and again, this is at the core of both colonialism and racist discourse that uh, approaches the Muslim and I would say the subaltern, the southern hemisphere, as basically having a DNA marker that is called violence and extremism. And it's left for the white man burden, the northern, the global north, uh, the Jack Straws of the world, uh, or the Blairs, the Bushes, uh, to come and try to engage in white man burden, civilizational DNA, what you call uh, therapy, to remove this DNA. So that construct, I'm a vehement. Uh, uh, what you call a uh, person that constantly uh, understand how that is structured to continue the interventionist policies and draw on resources. Uh, sure. Uh, team, you mentioned uh, some names there that sort of almost uh, takes us from uh, post-colonial to decolonial in the sense that uh, before they were at least considering Muslims as a burden, but now we have got uh, Trump in United States and uh, Boris in Britain, uh, who would even go further and say that Islam full stop and Muslim are a problem uh, more than trying to civilize them? Well, uh, uh, again, uh, I would not uh, go down to uh, contemplate Trump having a full sentence to be able to be coherent uh, or uh, Boris Johnson and uh, his bumbling few, uh, way into uh, disaster after disaster, and again, uh, looking at what happened with COVID-19, it just points uh, to this lack of uh, uh, clarity on what is occurring. And I think what we need moving from post-colonial to decolonial, and I think uh, what we need is a really a serious discussion uh, about the problematization of Islam and Muslims, 
who is benefiting from this Islamophobia discourse. Uh, you have a, a cast of completely discredited political leadership uh, that has nothing to offer other than uh, paying and giving to the rich uh, in all in our societies and uh, using the Muslim and Islam as the boogeyman uh, through which these policies uh, tend to, to be pushed. And as we confront COVID-19 in supposedly uh, the most advanced societies in the world, and I put this between two parentheses because the criteria of advance uh, yes. has to be challenged, uh, because if you look at it, uh, this is a society that now is allowing the elderly to die uh, in uh, these uh, retirement home and uh, assisted living homes. And again, I'm a deeply faithful person. And uh, if you don't uh, attend to your elder or the young, then what is the definition of quote, civilization or advancement or progress. Anybody can add numbers on GNP and DNP, sure. but no one can actually add ethics and morals into the, into the equation. Thanks for that. Let me bring you back onto the Islamophobia issue. Although we can mention a few personalities, but I think we have to accept that Islamophobia is becoming mainstream. It's almost hegemonic. And therefore, it's just not individuals anymore. It is the whole structure and the society and, and there are certain markers that I want you to think of, and in particularly concerned that what Muslims do as a political agent mm -hmm. is being uh, challenged. How, how do we understand that? Well, uh, as you know, uh, uh, I argue that the primary uh, violators of civil and human rights are governments uh, in general. Uh, individual discrimination cases could be dealt with. There are actually uh, overall sometimes remedies uh, as a resort to civil courts and so on. Uh, but when the governments themselves, as a result of a whole period of uh, stoking animus toward a particular targeted group, and I, again, I work with the African-American community, there, you know, exhibit one, of this structural and systematic nature. So, Islam, so Islamophobia has become the effective policy, uh, policies uh, that govern and regulate societies in a variety of areas. Uh, uh, and as such, uh, it's, it has already become the engine by which the uh, societal structure is um, uh, regulated and directed. So, for example, in the United States, our financial services is responding yeah. to Islamophobia. So uh, opening a bank account, uh, making transfers, uh, a number of uh, organizations in the U.S. and I know uh, the in the U.K. charities and Palestinian uh, related groups or Muslim groups, their bank accounts are closed because of the, this global structure that is directed by the European Union and the United States uh, that have already shifted normative financial practices. Media and uh, the domination of media and its, its infusion and replicating and creating the consent of the governed for the Islamophobic discourses. Uh, the intrusion into the privacy. Again, uh, in the U.S., we had uh, in New York, uh, stop and frisk, surveillance of mosques, uh, 
agent in every mosque. Uh, same in the UK with the prevent uh, regulating of the body and space of a Muslim in terms of hijab regulations, uh, what could be done in school and not. So in this sense, we have reached a hegemonic period where state apparatus, both domestically and also, I argue, I wrote a piece on Muslim majority countries that also, as a result of that relationship, have uh, imbibed this uh, aspect of that we are living in an Islamophobic, uh, social, political, uh, cultural imaginary that dominates and regulates everything we do as Muslims. Being a Muslim, you are a moving target to government agencies. In that case, can we use uh, the idea that, can, can I ask the question, I suppose, can Muslims speak? And I don't mean speak as in verbal, how we are doing, but speak <laughs> as in express both politically, socially, uh, economically uh, in the West? Yeah. Well, actually, I wrote a piece, Can Muslims Speak, uh, in a specific way. Uh, and, okay. and I would argue that we are not allowed in the, not in a sense that you're going out and just uh, talking, uh, uh, but we're not allowed to speak the political, we're not allowed to speak the economic, we're not in, allowed to speak in the religious uh, uh, scope. Uh, we're not allowed to speak to our children in the way that we raise them. Uh, and what is allowed, in essence, is for us to actually speak what the boss wants. So if the boss is sick, we say, we sick. Uh, if the boss is hungry, we hungry. And as such, uh, our Malcolm, Malcolm X. X is exactly Malcolm X in, in, the, in, the, in this sense. And then much of the research uh, that is coming out, uh, with exceptions again, uh, uh, we could point who are doing some of the solid research, but most of the research that is generated is actually is studying the Muslim as if you are in a lab, uh, that to see whether you actually, if we pinch you, going to say ouch, if we tickle you, whether you're going to laugh. And then we'll put some programs in front of you then so you could actually uh, begin to see whether your human DNA can emerge from it. Uh, so Muslims are studied, they're not known, that we are not actually engaged in knowing Muslims. We don't have that cultural, social uh, 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 inclusivity uh, on an equal footing. You're always are brought in uh, because the conversation is about you, not with you. So in this sense, uh, uh, the Muslims uh, can't speak, especially in the political, social, culture, and especially critiquing power. Uh, you know that you're immediately get a prevent task force that will try to investigate and maybe they'll have a, uh, a whole uh, national uh, health uh, project to evaluate uh, where is that came from and maybe they'll find a chapter from the Quran to try to link uh, your speech to what took place. So that's for me is uh, both laughable but is as they say in Arabic, uh, uh, that which makes you laugh and cry simultaneously. You, you, you paint a sort of certain picture which uh, might take our listeners um, quite aback. Uh, and they might want to ask that, you know what, there is success stories within Muslims in the West. Uh, the very presence uh, of us settling in the West uh, throughout Europe and Americas. And, and we have... <clears throat> 
sort of they might this might be the slogan we have made it and how do you counter that well i i i don't discount that uh we have Uh, individuals and communities that have are made uh, a path for their their way but i always say it is despite the arrogance despite the racism despite the walls despite the constant violence despite the intrusion despite the otherization that we made it not because of the generosity or all of a sudden mm-hmm. uh, Uh, the Boris Johnson government, or because uh, Trump all of a sudden sends a, uh, uh, a Eid or Ramadan greeting, it is despite this constant erasure uh, that uh, people have overcame uh, monumental challenges and proved themselves. Uh, so in this sense, if people feel that they have made success, and I would argue that we have made success, it is not because of the other or uh, government agencies is despite the arrogance, despite the racism, despite the uh, total uh, disregard of our community. And again, you could see it right now, and I know in both in the UK and the United States, uh, that Muslim uh, doctors, nurses, and so on, uh, who are the first responders, are the first to die. But again, uh, they have o- overwhelming odds uh, that they have been able to sustain themselves uh, and uh, create paths of success uh, at uh, some of the most difficult circumstances before them in the past and in the present. <clears throat> okay, let me go back a bit uh, um, and ask you something else. Would you then say Islamophobia is about Islam and Muslims? Well, it's it's... It's, it's about Islam and Muslims, but in a sense, it's about the majority society not being confident and understanding itself. So that it, uses the Islam, it uses Islam and Muslims as a way to craft its, its identity. Uh, so in that sense, it's a weakness okay. uh, and a lack of confidence and lack of, uh, I don't know if lack of confidence, but a lack of any sense of uh, direction. And therefore, one of the easy way is to use a scapegoat. So instead of dealing with the economic disaster of neoliberalism, globalization, instead of dealing with the disaster of interventions for fossil fuel, instead of dealing with environmental destruction, uh, if you're if you, instead of dealing with the collapsing level of income, sure. uh, you <clears throat> posit and bring up the Islam and Muslims. Uh, in domestic consideration in the Western discourse, and then you also problematize it across the world in, again, the global uh, power dynamics, whether it's with uh, Russia on the one hand or China. So the Muslims become the pawns uh, in a great game that is being played. Yeah. So if uh, somebody might want to ask, why Islam and Muslims then? Why not some other other, other group? Why are, why, why are we targeted, you think? Uh, well, One, again, there's such a rich reservoir of long history in terms of uh, uh, Muslim-Western uh, relations that dates back to, again, the uh, emergence of Islam, uh, where the West has a still a deep sense of irredentism toward uh, what they call the East. They believe that is their true heritage. So... It's very easy for somebody to pick that uh, literature 
and begin to uh, what you call uh, use it as the framing. Uh, there's the period of the Crusades, there's the uh, uh, the Inquisition period. So there's a lot of reservoir there. Then you get into the colonial period, there's a lot of material. So that's one aspect. There's a rich, uh, what you call, polemical literature uh, that uh, the Islamophobic industry and the Islamophobes, as well as their own government uh, uh, leadership, to, to lean on. So there's that one. The second is uh, that... Sure. The intensification of Islamophobia, as uh, uh, possibly the literature shows, it intensified after the end of the Cold War. Uh, it's not surprising yeah. that the uh, Huntington clash of civilization uh, thesis uh, comes at the conclusion of the Cold War. And uh, he bits on uh, Muslims and uh, the Chinese, uh, uh, Sino-Islamic uh, threat. Sure. And therefore, it's actually uh, seeing that there's a vast territory and a vast region. So we finish with the communists. Uh, how to rationalize our internal uh, structure? Because, again, the United States as a superpower is spending about $700 billion. You can't close shop mm -hmm. uh, after the Cold War. You need new ways to rearrange and reorganize. And I think the Muslim world was conveniently in there as a site to reconfigure internal dynamics. The third, which I think is very, very important, is that the Muslim world also happens to be sitting both at the strategic and also economic uh, pulse uh, at a global uh, level. Uh, oil is still the, the primary engine for uh, the uh, global economy, fossil fuel. Uh, and uh, again, we could think of Iran, we could think of Iraq, we could think of the Gulf and the centrality of oil for driving uh, the market. Even though the, the United States uh, oil uh, production is as equal or as high, sometimes even being the, the first, the United States wants not only to control its own oil, but also control its oil, the oil supplies to its competitors, both Europe and China uh, in this sense. So. Uh, the Middle East and the Arab Muslim world also with strategic waterways and navigation, all that becomes a convenient way to get a new lease into uh, Western power over the world. The key fact... Yes. Let me get yes. you... The key Sorry, fact carry on. is this. Carry on. All of this has to work because at the, at the notions of having an imperial project you need to convince the imperial citizenry that this is done for their best interest. And the way to do it, you demonize and you create this threat. So uh, that's what I say that Muslims and Islam today is the new monster incorporated for the Eurocentric superpower Western interventionists. You tell people that if you go to bed, there's a Muslim under your bed. Uh, if you open your car and it's not, it's a VW and it's, the engine is not working, it's the Muslims that is in the engine. And if you're running for election, you just put up a Muslim uh, horrific negative image in order for you to get your uh, fear factor up to get uh, elected and get in there. Brexit and Trump uh, use that in a masterful way. Sure, sure. Let me go back to one of the points you, you raised, strategic. You, you mentioned the word strategic uh, positioning of Muslim. And in particularly... Uh, sure the issue of Palestine, which we haven't touched so far, and colonialism, 
How do you link colonialism strategy and Islamophobia uh, into this uh, network? Well, uh, just on terms of uh, the funding front, uh, in the yeah. United States, in terms of the research that we have done, uh, uh, the overwhelming uh, amount of funding that is coming to support the Islamophobic industry is coming from pro-Israel sources. Uh, I would estimate okay. uh, about maybe 70% of the funding for the Islamophobia industry in the United States uh, accounted for about 114, maybe right now going to maybe 120 different groups uh, that are Islamophobic. Uh, in the research that we documented through tax returns, uh, we had the San Francisco Jewish Federation, the New York Jewish Federation, the Chicago Jewish Federation, which is the uh, fundraising arm for the Jewish community, funding uh, uh, Tea Party Patriots, funding Gert Wilder of the Netherlands, funding Canary Mission, funding uh, some of Canvas Watch, and all the groups that are structurally engaged in demonizing uh, Islam and Muslims as such. So that's on the funding side and the organization side. Now let me speak in terms of strategically. Uh, I think the uh, state of Israel, uh, after the Cold War, needed to reorient itself to be of service or of value into a, uh, uh, a unipolar world uh, versus uh, uh, before, which is uh, the, so the East-West confrontation, the Soviet Union and uh, the United States. So in post-Cold War, uh, Israel needed to reorient and assert its uh, centrality to the new uh, era. And as such, uh, they have uh, hitched their wagon, uh, both inside Palestine and globally, to the Islamophobic uh, discourse. And we could see that immediately after 9-11, even before, because again, uh, the anti-terrorism legislation targeting Muslims beginning uh, in the early 90s, and then you have the U.S. in 1996, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, uh, which was uh, uh, President Clinton that declared in the U.S. a state of emergency for the violence that was taking place uh, inside Palestine, uh, began with the attack uh, of uh, Baruch Goldstein on the Al-Ibrahimi Mosque. But the president declared the state of emergency and sure. that gave uh, the omnibus uh, anti-terrorism bill in 1996. From that moment or that period, what we see is the Israeli strategic uh, thinking, uh, policy papers, uh, spokespersons training, all focus and try to use Islamophobic uh, language in order to say that Israel is in the front line in relations to we and the West. So prior to that, we and the West, meaning Israel and the West, was speaking about the threat of communism. But it's so it shifted to focus so we, to Islam and Muslims as a strategic, making Israel as having a strategic utility <laughs> in a unipolar world. So you think that basically Israel has used this uh, to instrumentalize or instrumentalize Islam and Muslim and Islamophobia to be more specific? Oh, absolutely. Uh, for it's, their benefit. Uh, they have to, uh, again, the post-Cold War, uh, the United States no longer needed 
uh, uh, Israel uh, as a key uh, ally. Actually, it was, a, it, becoming, it was increasingly becoming a strategic liability. And I remind people not in here uh, as a point of uh, favor one way or the other. During the uh, uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq in, 19, in the 1990s, the uh, desert storm, the United States had to plead with Israel not to enter into the war because it will actually damage its ability to have uh, the Arab coalition or the Arab countries that joined. Which means that if Israel was part of, again, sure. from 1950s onward uh, until 1991, if Israel was the strategic advanced uh, state to assist the United States in military confrontation, at the moment that the United States was engaged in military confrontation with the so-called coalition, again, I oppose the Iraq war, the first one, the second one, and continue. But if the United States had a strategic ally in the region, it was actually a strategic liability. In addition, as the Cold War ended and the United States was focusing on China and the Muslim world, Israel was violating uh, the uh, uh, technology restrictions of passing missile technology to China. So it's, again, Israel is a strategic liability in this sense. Uh, third, as the United States was trying to... Uh, engage in bilateral relations in various parts of the Muslim world, uh, Israel was, again, uh, a strategic liability in those bilateral relations and then also creating a competition, economic competition for the U.S. in this sense. So Islamophobia makes possible to reorient Israel as being the key strategic ally in the fight of terrorism and using the Palestinian as the laboratory to rationalize the Israel centrality sure. as the key ally in the region, and this is where we are at. So uh, the shift occurring post-Cold War and Israel shifting from anti-communist, anti-secularist uh, uh, focus to anti-Islam, anti-Muslims, Islamophobia as a way to rationalize its centrality. And that's why Israel becomes the go-to place. So, for example, Israel built two towns supposedly to, to train on counterterrorism and uh, uh, police forces from various parts of the, of the Western world, including, I would say, in the UK and maybe the, uh, I know for sure, the United States, they go there to train and then they come also here to provide the training. And when they sure. do that, it's the stereotypical refinement of the Muslim Islam as the quintessential threat that is facing uh, the society, and Israel is the key ally. The only ally often is being uh, argued, even uh, considering uh, how much Saudi Arabia and Gulf states are providing, that still, they're just the checkbook, but we are the only trusted ally. And I think that language begins to be uh, connecting strategically Israel to the needs and in interests of uh, Western states. Uh, that, that's something very interesting. Um, I'm sure you're quite aware that there's many Jewish groups uh, who are against uh, Israeli's occupation colonial project, and they're also against uh, Islamophobia. And I particularly point to the network against oh, Islamophobia I, by I, Jewish I think Voice we for need Peace. To distinguish between the state, Israel, Israel as a state, and its interests, and its connecting. Uh, its uh, work and policies to uh, imperial uh, 
uh, interventionist policies of Western states versus, I would say, the uh, various segments of the Jewish community, which we have been doing to work with them and sustained work. I think uh, Jewish Voice for Peace in the United States has been uh, very, very important. And they actually also have moved from early on being uh, uh, at least uh, not anti-Zionist to moving to embracing an anti-Zionist perspective. Uh, also, the groups, uh, if not now, uh, uh, are there. So you have considerable shift. And I think the studies both in the United States and other parts of the world shows that the young generation, the uh, young Jewish uh, uh, community and young Jews in general are shifting away from thinking Israel as the central of their identity and politics and so on to see that uh, that's no a, a state that is violating human rights that increasingly engaged in apartheid uh, is not something that uh, I would actually put and build my identity on. And I think there is a shift that we are seeing, uh, which possibly points to why some of the uh, established Zionist organizations in the West are becoming more belligerent because they are feeling uh, that their sure. own uh, logic and rationale uh, for maintaining their own internal cohesion with their community is all already faltering. And considering the belligerency that is coming from Netanyahu and his policies uh, that do not bode well uh, in the long term uh, for uh, a, a continued uh, cohesion within uh, the uh, broader se uh, segments of the Jewish community. So I think we could speak about those alliances and uh, the emergence of real solidarity uh, between Jews, Palestinians, Muslims, both on Islam, but also in confronting anti-Semitism. Uh, and I, again, uh, just, to, just to critique Israel's policy, Israel has embraced every right-wing uh, political figure in Europe, uh, their relationship with Orban. Uh, like, who would actually invite Orban to visit uh, a country, let alone visit Israel? Uh, embracing Gerd Wilder, and not only that, uh, actually providing funding from him, again, as we see from the tax return here in the United States. If anything, he should be a person that uh, uh, should be uh, shunned, if not actually put uh, uh, as uh, a person that is hospitable to uh, Nazi ideas or neo-Nazi ideas. All right. So again, this points to the contradiction uh, that uh, I think Jewish activists uh, that are also embracing a decolonial lens uh, are beginning to uh, see that the solidarity is to overcome uh, the prescribed narrow tunnel of Zionism and what it demands of them. Thanks for that. I mean, we've, we've come quite a long way on, on this journey today. Uh, we started talking about the framing of Islamophobia and we discussed uh, the fact that, you know, Muslim agency uh, is being denied and the Muslim haven't got the right to speak and the systemic uh, governance of Muslim bodies overall, um, and then linked it to, to the funding or, or to, to the work of Palestinians and the de demonization of the Palestinian uh, activists as well as uh, uh, people who work yes. uh, who, as Palestinians on the ground, sorry. Uh, uh, to just uh, sum up, how would you in particularly link interesting for people in the West, whether Muslims or non-Muslims, who are working for the Palestinian issue uh, to carry on well, uh, despite I the obstacles. Well, I always say if, 
uh, you think the obstacles we face are overwhelming, just uh, take comfort and just look at what the situation in Gaza is. And that should give you uh, that the Gazans have not given up nor have uh, said that it's so difficult. Uh, look at the Palestinians that are in the West Bank in the refugee camps or look at the Palestinians in 48. Uh, we are going to face overwhelming odds. There is no question about it. Uh, it's an uphill battle. Uh, it's an uphill struggle uh, that is confronting us. Uh, we are we're definitely unmatched by resources. Uh, uh, Zionist organizations and uh, their infrastructure uh, is very well established, and uh, they mobilize it effectively. Uh, they have you know, relationship with uh, political elites. Uh, they're connected to the cultural uh, producers within the society. So all that is there. But what I tell them is, again, uh, I take comfort in looking at South Africa and what developments in South Africa. Nobody, uh, if they looked at South Africa uh, in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, even to the late 80s, uh, uh, Reagan administration in, 19, in the early to mid-80s, they were still engaged in what's called constructive engagement policy, which means supporting apartheid South Africa. Uh, so South Africa was the last colonial outpost in Africa, and it was demolished and came down in 1991. Yeah. Uh, so I'm comforted that, the, again, the arc of justice is long, but it tips toward justice. And I would say that uh, these are for us the times and the uh, uh, opportunities to engage people to critique the domestic politics that uh, have completely sidelined almost the regular person. Like, I guess the, the regular British person is as uh, what you call suffering from the circumstances of this, this neglect, erasure and so on as the Palestinians that are living inside uh, the occupied territories and the refugee camps. So what we need is to actually be very clear that the odds are overwhelming, but the opportunities to work are there. What we need is to be strategic, is to actually use our limited resources to be uh, very effective and focus on our work. I, uh, I'm, a, again, a person that is uh, uh, engaged in the PDS movement, the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement. Uh, currently uh, in the U.S., and I would also know that you're doing the same in uh, the U.K. in the Muslim community, the date boycott campaign, we're in the mix of it. Uh, there should be no excuse for any Muslim uh, to buy a, a box of dates uh, that uh, originate from apartheid, uh, from an apartheid state that is using and usurping Palestinian lands to grow dates as well as violate the rights of the Palestinians who are working or engaged in there. So PDS is an important tool. And I know that uh, in the UK, you have won a major uh, uh, major uh, case in the court uh, on the rights of PDS. I myself had won a, case, a court case here uh, at the University of Arizona. And we have been mounting challenges on this. So PDS is an important strategic tool for us uh, to continue to uh, organize and uh, work around the third. Uh, do you have a question or? No, uh, basically, yes. if time is running out, and I sure I'm sure we could have another hour with you. Uh, but I think to summarize, basically, what you're mm -hmm. saying is to regain to go back to the Islamophobia issue. Uh, and we, you asked a question: Can Muslims speak? 
uh, is to say that this is one way of speaking yes. uh, and to reassert uh, political agency. So I think if you're okay with that, we will have to say thank you very much, Professor Hatim, for joining. Oh, thank you, Ismail. Uh, and inshallah, and all of you we'll have another opportunity UK next time. community and the broader community, all the best. Uh, may your health be preserved and may the better days and joyful days return to everyone. Thank you. Walaikum salam. This has been another episode of Network Reorient. Thank you for tuning in. Please have a listen to some of our other episodes and leave a rating.